Today's episode is brought to you by MetaMask Portfolio. You'll be hearing more about them later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Very happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, Kathy Jones, Chief Fixed Income Strategist for Schwab. Kathy, welcome to Forward Guidance. Great to see you. What has been going on over the past few months has been very exciting, and everyone wants to talk about bonds. We had a tremendous sell-off in October and a rip-roaring rally in November. How are you sort of thinking about the bond market in terms of you know how much interest rate risk you you think is is wise to take, as well as the drivers of you know what when it, the the ten year yield goes up or down? What is what is sort of driving that that move? Yeah, and thanks for having me, Jack. I, I think the in my mind, what happened in the fall from you know like October, September to October when yields surged. We had a pretty strong third quarter GDP growth. We were seeing a lot of indications that the economy was resilient and rebounding and, and really taking off. And that economic surprise index really surged and it changed expectations about how strong the economy is. The you, Earlier in the year, we were talking about recession. By the third quarter, we we're talking about, oh my gosh, 5% five, 5 growth. And then, of course, that shifted expectations about what the Fed would do and other central banks. There was some narrative around treasury supply, et cetera. But I think the main driver was really the surprisingly strong burst of growth that we had sent yields up. And then all of a sudden, it was sort of like, oh, that was just a blip. We're back really to a slower growth environment. The jobs numbers are indicating, you know, things are slowing down in the labor market, which is kind of the last shoe to drop. Inflation numbers have come down. So I, we've pretty much now taken out that whole move up from September to October. November has kind of corrected almost all of it. In terms of how much interest rate risk to take, though we've been advocates of adding duration for people who are sitting in cash, and a whole lot of people have been sitting in cash or very short-term instruments. We've been suggesting adding duration kind of gradually as yields went up on the idea that the Fed is going to do what it takes to bring inflation down, and that'll bring down long-term rates. And we continue to hold to that. The issue we face now is yields have come back so fast that I think it's hard to catch up. We still think an intermediate-term duration, meaning something similar to the ag around six, uh, is a reasonable place to be. And no one's going to pick the highs and the lows in the market. But assuming you're in fixed income to generate income over the long term, we think the intermediate term right here and high quality fixed income, you know, makes a lot of sense for most investors. And what what will be the fundamental driver if your if your bull case on let's say you know interest rates plays out? Is it going to be slowing inflation, falling inflation? Will it be a recession? Does one or both of those things have to happen? Federal Reserve rate cuts. Will the Federal Reserve be willing or able to cut interest rates if there is no recession? That might, it, you know, was somewhat of an open question a few months ago. I think now the Fed has made it a little more clear that they, they would consider doing that. I think that the, the out, our outlook is basically that inflation continues to fall. It's already fallen quite a bit. What we've seen is, say, that the personal consumption expenditures number that's the benchmark measure that the Fed uses year over year on a, a, a you know holistic basis, it's down to 
ex-food and energy, the core reading is down to three and a half percent. And that's been a consistent decline from the peak. I mean, it's down by over half, uh, reversing much of what that spike in, in inflation occurred. And we expect that trend to continue. We continue to see softness in a lot of the leading indicators that would suggest inflation comes down. If you look at energy prices, wholesale goods in general on the goods side, very soft. Import prices negative for eight months in a row. We're seeing loosening in the labor market with job growth slowing down, wage growth slowing down. So the demand side in the service sector is easing. Service sector ISM starting to look a little bit softer. So we think that we are on our way to achieving that 2% inflation over time. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but we've gone from seven to three and a half pretty quickly. I think we can go from three and a half to two and a half in 2024, and that brings yields down. So the main driver to us is the slowing in inflation, which does go hand in hand with a slower growth economy. It doesn't necessarily require a recession. I wouldn't rule it out simply because there's a lot of tightening in the system. So we've had the Fed rate hikes. We still have quantitative tightening taking place. We're seeing bank lending standards tighten up and it's much more difficult and expensive to get credit for consumers, for small businesses. And small businesses are, are the responsible for most of the hiring that takes place in the, in the United States. You know, 75 to 80% of the hiring takes place at small businesses. So they're feeling the pinch in terms of credit availability or just the cost of credit's really high. They're going to cut back on that hiring as well. They may not lay people off, so they certainly aren't going to add at the rate they were. So the demand side is slowing down. All the things that happen when monetary policy tightens are happening. And we think that that will continue to work its way through. As for the Fed, what does it require for them to cut rates? We, we do think they'll probably cut rates at some stage in 2024. We have not penciled in as rapid or early a pace of rate cuts as a lot of people have, or is it the market's currently pricing in? We, we look for them to start cutting probably mid-year, around June, and to cut three times 25 basis points each time. And that would be in response to slower growth, lower inflation, growing confidence that we're getting closer to the target rate. And if we hit a, a real bump in the road in terms of a mild recession, that might speed up, might accelerate a little bit. But I think that this is a Fed that's really reluctant to go too fast because they don't want to let inflation rebound. Right. So uh, you and your, your team at Schwab are looking at the Federal Reserve to do maybe three cuts in 2024 as starting as early as June. The market is ahead of you thinking, you know, that's not uh, aggressive enough. The cuts could start, you know, as early as March. And there's a, you know, Small 14% probability, although you know the way these probabilities are calculated, who knows that according to you know the CME, the Fed could start you know as early as January. Needless to say, not not my base case and certainly not your base case. But explain to me if your view on the short end of what the Federal Reserve is going to do over the next year or two years, if if your view on the short end is you think rates will be higher than the market thinks. How then do you have a long view on duration? In other words, how do you think? Do you think that you know the two year will go up? You know, if, if you're if you're sort of not bearish on the two year you th- because you think the market it's too aggressive in pricing in Fed cuts, why are you bullish on the five year or the, the ten year? Well, we think the inverted yield curve stays in play, so okay. we're not 
seriously bearish on the two year in terms of, you know, we still have two years for, for rates to come down. So, but I do think the two years gotten ahead of itself. The short end's gotten ahead of itself in terms of pricing and Fed cuts. I know why, because we're in a normal cycle, whatever a normal cycle is, in past cycles, I should say, the Fed would be more forward-looking. They would be cutting faster. And we would have a forecast for them to start cutting in March and cut pretty aggressively given the trends. But one thing that informs our forecast is this Fed's reluctance to move quickly, their willingness to hold back you know, we've heard this over and over again from the Fed, even as they talk about the possibility of rate cuts, it's still very cautiously. And this is the, we don't want to be repeating the mistakes of the 70s argument. And so I think that while in the previous cycles, faster, deeper rate cuts would have been appropriate and, and reasonable to forecast, we've specifically held back this time, respecting the fact that everything we hear from the Fed is they don't want to do that. Now, they may change their minds if things get really ugly, things start to to accelerate to the downside, we hit some sort of a, a blip in the financial markets. I could see them moving faster and deeper, but we don't want to forecast that because we don't have any evidence that that's going to happen. So our, our base case scenario is that you know, two-year kind of sits here and trades in a range. Ten-year, though, can continue to come down. Five-year, ten-year can continue to come down in expectation that the Fed will indeed rate lower rates over time. And that the longer they hold out at the short end, the more you get disinflation in the system that should be favorable for the five- and ten-year part of the, the curve. In other words, the tighter they are now, the more downside you have in inflation and growth more risk you have of recession. And that should be good for the longer end of the curve. So you know, not to get too too far ahead on, of my skis, but if you think that the curve will stay inverted and you know, you're bullish on the 10-year, uh, not super bullish on the two-year, let's put it that way, is it fair to say you think that the term premium will go down or return to being negative? I think it will, yeah, go down. I think negative is a possibility, particularly if we hit a recession. It's really hard to forecast the term premium, right? It's 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 sort of this, I look at it as a sort of catch-all for everything else we can't explain in the treasury market. So, but the, the move up in the term premium was certainly a significant contributing factor to the rise in rates that we saw earlier. So some decline in the term premium would make sense. I think some of it reflects volatility and uncertainty about the path of short-term rates, right? And that is probably going to be with us in 2024. I don't think that volatility, that uncertainty generated by the Fed's reaction function is going to disappear. I I think we're sort of saying rocky road, rocky road, lower yields, but rocky road in 2024. Can't rule out a lot of uh, bumpiness just because the Fed's reaction function is so out of out of sync with what I think most investors are accustomed to. Mm, thanks. So the, the Fed has hinted that not only might cup, uh, cuts be on the way, but that hikes are probably over. And you know the market is interpreting that as uh, hikes are definitely over. Given that interest rates can only go one way, up or down, or, or stay the same, if, if up is off the table, does that mean that interest rate volatility uh, is, is muted and that's kind of a, you know, a, a room, room, to, room to ride? Not yet. I think that the volatility to some extent is reflecting 
the fact that the Fed leaves the door open to more tightening. Uh, we also have the shrinking liquidity to think about, which can add to volatility. You know, the treasury market's not as liquid and, and easily traded. We get these outsized moves um, that come out of the blue from time to time. So liquidity is shrinking. We've got quantitative tightening, which the Fed thinks it can continue to do while it's, you know, changing course and lowering rates. I have my doubts as to whether that's going to happen or whether that even makes sense. But I think it is a potential source of volatility as well. So I don't, I think volatility can come down from sort of the peak levels that we hit last year, but I don't think it's returning to the kind of low levels we saw during the financial crisis or, you know, ZERP or, or even the 90s probably. It's probably not going to be that low. And how are you thinking about where the floor is on rates? You know, I mean, really, maybe there is no floor. I mean, in Europe and Japan, zero wasn't even a floor. But uh, there's a so-called uh, terminal rate about where the market thinks will be the highest, or in this case, the, the lowest rate. I guess we are at the, we already are at the terminal rate for the the height. But in terms of the terminal rate for for cuts, where do you think when the Federal Reserve is done cutting, what will that level be, and is that level higher or lower than the the current market rate, which I can pull up right now, I guess. Yeah, I, our, our view is that it's not going to go back to quite as low as it was because you know, nobody really knows, right, what the, the natural rate is, the neutral rate is. Uh, we keep finding it and it keeps changing with every era. Um, but I'd seeing, seeing yields go down as far as they did in the last cycle seems unlikely to us. There are a lot of reasons for it to be somewhat higher. I think that the potential growth rate is probably higher than it was during, you know, the great financial crisis era, during the pandemic era, should be on the positive side. That being said, can the Fed end up lowering rates towards, you know, 3%? Sure. Going down to 2 or even lower, that seems unlikely. Right. But even if it's unlikely, if there's a 8% chance that interest rates go to zero, that could significantly affect pricing. And I think I looked up the, the market terminal rate thinks that the lowest the Fed will go to is like 3.3%. So, so around there. And how does, how, how do you, you, know, you arrive at that 3% uh, figure? You know, some folks say, oh, it's just nominal growth. What, what the tenure should be is just always nominal growth. I have a little bit of a hard time with that, given that you know, GDP growth in 2021 was incredibly robust and off the charts, double digits. And the 10-year was, you know, one and a half percent. How do you think about fundamental models about sort of the, the valuation of a 10-year relative to inflation growth expectations, which I, I know is a pretty, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty tough to model? Yeah. So the old models used to, it used to work. Nominal GDP growth, 10-year yield, you know, they, they moved together. There was a range around it, obviously, during the early 80s when we had so much volatility. Uh, that range was pretty wide, and then we settled into the 90s when it you know, tracked pretty well. And frankly, modeling 10-year yields using nominal GDP growth and sticking in an assumption here or there and a bit of a lag, and you, you had a pretty decent model. That hasn't worked for a long time. And so we have not used nominal GDP per se as a, as a strong factor in modeling 10-year yields. And the, the reason is it stopped working. It stopped being that easy or that clear cut. And we needed to take another look, especially once we went into you know, zero interest rates, quantitative easing, 
all that just threw all that out the window. Uh, but it was it was kind of diminishing as a signal before that. So we take nominal GDP growth into account because you know it's still important, but it's not kind of the big the big factor that we use in modeling. So when we think about valuation, we're basically trying to take you know what is the quote unquote neutral rate that we estimate and what is the inflation rate that we can plug in. And when we come down to it, we look at, well, if the neutral rate for used to be negative and the neutral rate now you know has moved up, it's in positive territory, but it's not the 2% that it was for 40 years. It may be, maybe it's closer to 1%. We plug in 2% inflation, we've got 3% or so for the Fed funds rate. You add on you know, 100 basis points and a lot of ups and downs, and you've got a 10-year that trades between you know, three and a half to four and a half as kind of a long run picture. Again, there's going to be a lot of fluctuations around that, but you have to start with some assumption, I think, on what the, the natural rate should be, what the neutral rate should be. That's the hardest thing for us to estimate because it keeps moving around on us. So you first find the, the neutral real rate, so inflation adjusted rate, and then you take the inflation rate. Right, right. Okay, that, that makes sense. And what's your level of, of confidence in uh, your, your long duration view Given the the price action, I'm, I mean, it, does a move like this uh, in an, uh, just a spectacular decline in, in yields over a month, does that occur during a, a bond bear market, for example? So I've been doing this since the late 70s. So I have seen a few bond bear markets in my time, <laughs> more than a few. And yeah, you see some of these spectacular moves. I mean, this level of volatility is something that harkens back to late 70s, early 80s. And yet we're at much lower. We have huge moves, even though the yield levels are lower than they were then. You know, we have these gigantic moves. And I, so I think that that's a little bit startling for a lot of people to, to look at that sort of volatility within the treasury market because you know, it hasn't been the case for a very long time. But I do think that it, you know, maybe this is a rally in a bear market. I don't think so. We have a, a fairly confident view that that 502 on the 10-year was the peak for the cycle. And the reason is the fundamentals are shifting. So if it hadn't been, first of all, we thought that was overdone. So we really we really liked them at 5%. Um, we thought that there was too much of a narrative around supply, treasury issuance, budget things. You know That rarely has a strong statistical correlation with the trend in yields. And so we thought that that was just a narrative that was adding to the shakeout in the market. And there was this tremendous uncertainty about what the Fed was going to do. Now that we've shifted again and the fundamentals have kind of reverted to that slower growth, falling inflation scenario, we still feel good about duration. It's not the it's not as much fun as it was at five percent when you're at four and a quarter, wherever we are today, four seventeen, I think was a low. But I do think that over time, having a strategy that targets an intermediate term duration where you lock in yields. So in the treasury market, we're looking at four and a quarter or so, but you lock in yields on investment grade corporate bonds, you know, in the five plus area, 
if you're an investor and you're saying I'm getting a 5% plus without a lot of risk, why wouldn't I want to do that for at least that part of my portfolio? Today's interview is brought to you by MetaMask Portfolio, your one-stop shop to manage your crypto assets and access a range of Web3 services all in one place. Overseeing your crypto assets across different wallets and networks can be very complicated. MetaMask Portfolio solves this by giving you the reins to manage your crypto from a single decentralized application or DAP. Just connect to MetaMask Portfolio to get a bird's eye view of all your coins, tokens, and NFTs, and you can easily buy, sell, swap, bridge, and stake crypto assets at competitive rates right within the app from a vetted list of providers. No more jumping between dozens of sites and apps. MetaMask Portfolio lets you do more in Web3 your way, giving you secure and convenient access to a wide range of features and services all in one place. Manage your portfolio your way with MetaMask Portfolio. Click the link in the description of today's episode to get started. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Right. And I know there are sort of two schools of thought about what drives uh, Bonniel's one is it's only what we've talked about, central banks and the underlying economy. The other school of thoughts, let's call that school two, is yes, but supply and demand matters a lot. When you know the U.S. Treasury issues a ton of bonds, the supply goes up and if demand stays constant, the price will go down and yield twists will go up. And some point to the very aggressive issuance of the U.S. Treasury over the past few years, and they look at the, the rise in bond yields and they, you know, draw that connection is it so it's my understanding that you actually think that is the the wrong connection to make so so someone who looks at for example you know the the treasury of general account and the quarterly refunding announcements and they you know associate the uh, the pretty severe bear market in the summer and fall with the, with coupon issuance and then that one day, I think it was November 1st, where it actually was released, the data was released, and it actually was better than some investors anticipate. And then we have a, a you know, month-long, basically, nirvana for, for duration bulls. Can, can you, you know, explain to someone who has that view why you know, it may seem that way, but actually the statistical data does not support the, the connection? Yeah, I know that I'm a bit of an outlier in this, but I having started my career in a trading desk, there was always a view that as you approach auctions, this isn't the first time we've worried about the treasury budget deficit, by the way. You know, we didn't just work, wake up this year and say, oh my gosh, you know, we're running in front of the deficit. We're, oh, the treasury's going to have to issue more paper. Oh no, that, that isn't a surprise, right? We've, we've known this for a long time, but it, it comes into focus from time to time. But having started with a trading desk, the, the, this was always a story that you kind of wait for yield to back up going into the election, and then they would to clear, to clear the paper, and then they would, you know, the market would rally once that was behind you. So I, you know, I thought, well, this is this layup, right? I'm going to short bonds going into the auction. I'm going to buy them, and you know, and I'm going to have a great, a great trade, a, a money maker, right? Well. When you do the work and you try it, it's a 50-50 kind of proposition. Sometimes they rally, sometimes they don't after auctions. Sometimes they, you know, rally going into auctions. Sometimes they fall going into auctions. And if, you know, if you do the work on it over various time periods, and I've done three minutes to three months to, you know, years, the correlation just isn't there. So... Yeah, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. 
And so my, I am a bit of an outlier. I understand supply and demand. I understand that you have to, there has to be a clearing yield, but I don't think that the move last fall was really that tightly. It looked like it was tightly correlated, but in general, we also had a much stronger than expected economy happening in the third quarter. And those numbers were coming out. And we had then this idea, the shift in expectations about what the Fed was going to do. And we had inflation fears building. And then you throw on treasury supply and, you know, it, it made a it made a negative story in general. But I'm not going to attribute it solely to, you know, that whole thing about issuance. Because again, people in the market are pretty smart. There are a lot of estimates out there. We all knew that there was going to be a lot of issuance. We all knew that once the the debt ceiling dispute was over, you know, things were going to come out. There was going to be more paper issued. This this just isn't a big shock. So I guess, I, again, I'm an outlier in this belief, but having tried to make this work as a trade over the years and not, <laughs> not finding a statistical cor- correlation, I, I just, I don't think that that's the whole story. So, so you're making an empirical argument just saying this isn't what I've seen and the argument about why it might not work, because again, it's intuitive, you know, more supply, consistent demand or stable demand uh, would cause prices to go down, yields to go up. Is that demand adjusts accordingly because it is anticipatory? Yeah, to a large extent. And also that the major drivers of yields is not how much the treasury is issuing from one month to another, one quarter to another. Treasury is always issuing paper, right? I'm not saying supply and demand don't matter, but I don't think they matter in the way that a lot of people paint it, right? So we we cleared, we cleared at roughly 5%. There's sort of a story like, well, who's going to buy the paper? You know, we've got some deficits, there's so much coming. Well, it turns out that, yeah, maybe certain buyers step back, other buyers stepped in, households, mutual funds, money market funds, they would take as much paper as they could get their hands on at 5%. So the buyers shift around. And yeah, on the margin, so, you know, the, the supply side can affect you know, who buys and, and what yield you need to clear. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm not saying it is not that easy sort of correlation that people are making it. You know, the U.S. Treasury market, there's a built-in demand from foreign central banks, major companies, individual investors. I mean, there is a built-in market for this that's hard to replicate anywhere else. So we're going to clear it. It's just a a question, where do we clear it? And to have sudden spikes because we're issuing more paper, the the idea that this is going to last or that this is the sole driver, I guess, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. So you're saying it's not that supply doesn't matter. It's that only a surprise change in supply would would affect things. In other words, if there's a, a trillion dollar issuance tomorrow that just came out of the blue, like, like lightning, that may make it. But pretty much everything else is priced in by the market. I mean, I would say that the market adjusts to the level of supply that's anticipated pretty pretty efficiently. So yeah, it would probably have to be a big, a big shock. But it is one reason we're not looking for yields to go all the way back to where they were, say, you know, during the pre in the pre-pandemic era, because we do have more issues, we do have more deficits to fund, and we have on top of that 
we have a political dysfunction that doesn't give us a clear pathway to dealing with it. And that I think is is a factor to take into consideration that might keep that you know term premium higher. It might keep that level of uncertainty higher. It might be that what goes into that catch-all that constitutes the term premium. But I think as a as a driver of market action, it's overstated. Yes, and, and needless to say, in the early 2010s, there was so much ink spilled and, and discussions and hindering about the national debt. And of course, the past decade has been a decade of declining interest rates and, and declining bond yields. And I also can, can can relate to your point because when the Federal Reserve is doing quantitative easing, they're buying bonds that should drive the bond yields to go down. But actually, bond yields tend to rise during that period. The only way I could explain that is because the Fed tends to do quantitative easing when the economy is weak. And coming out of a weak period, uh, bond yields are low, so they would they would tend to rise. So fundamentally, you know, the Fed buying a trillion dollars of something tends to increase the price and and, and lower the yield. So it's it's it's, it's a, a really interesting topic. And, but talking about the, the Fed buying assets, the Federal Reserve is continuing to do quantitative tightening to to roll off its balance sheet to decline its its holdings. Earlier, you said that you're not sure you're not sold on the the idea that that is sustainable. Why did you say that? And it, is it because you, you know, do you think there could be some sort of accident in the, in the market? I think there's a couple, a range of possible outcomes. So, you know, when I think about it in the, in the most straightforward terms, I think about quantitative tightening as putting your foot on the brake, right, to slow the economy. And that goes with raising interest rates, another way to tighten policy. So they go together. If you now say, well, I'm going to keep interest rates high to put a break on the economy, but I'm going to do quantitative easing, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. Same is true. If the Fed pivots to cutting rates because the economy is slowed down, that's putting your foot back on the gas or taking it off the brake. Why then are you using your other foot to stand by the brake? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It's a, that, that These are two actions that go together. They reinforce each other. And it doesn't make sense to me that they would do that. I also think you have to be able to really calibrate that very carefully to not have a market accident, right? Not have a problem where liquidity dries up too much. And so I think the, the combination of sending a very confusing signal to the market and draining liquidity when you're, on the one hand, when you're trying to increase it on another could could cause some sort of pinch in the market as we've seen in the past. So it doesn't, to me, I know that the, the Fed really, you know, is convinced it has the tools to do these actions separately. And I know there's a great deal of discomfort on the Fed's part to have a big balance sheet. It's It doesn't look good. They want to step back from the mortgage market. Um, you know, they want to have just enough to help the markets and the economy function without having too much. They want us stop, you know, they want to be able to repay funds back to the treasury as they have been doing for a long time. I understand all the motivations, but I don't know mechanically if it's going to work very well. And that's what has me concerned. So I think that it may be very difficult to do two things at once and calibrate it so precisely that you don't run into a problem. Hmm. Interesting. Speaking of mortgages, what are your Current thoughts on the, I guess, I mean, I guess we could talk about whole loan mortgages, but mortgage-backed securities in particular, which I know maybe one or two months ago 
were at extreme levels of cheapness relative to like investment grade spreads or some other uh, metric. I gather they've rallied a little bit, but I, to be honest, I don't know how much they have. So yeah, how how cheap are they still at extreme levels, or are they only are they you know only very very cheap instead of extremely cheap? Yeah, I would say that they're very cheap, but they're not extremely cheap. And so you know, I, I think the mortgage area is has a level of attraction for a lot of investors, but you, I, I think you have to tread a little bit more carefully there, just because of the you know convexity issues of the kind of liquidity issues that exist in the market. I you know I think it's it's fine to have a position in mortgages. We we kind of like them when they got really really cheap. We think there's some room for them to improve from here, but I don't I don't think that this is I I don't think it's going to be without volatility. I, I think there's going to be a lot of back and forth in that market to navigate. And do you th- do you think that sort of the convexity priced into them is is cheap or expensive? And this is why I think you have to tread carefully because this is a different mortgage market. This is a different housing market than we've had in past cycles because so much of the market is kind of locked in at low rates. And so estimating prepayment streams or speeds is, is a little bit more difficult these days than it used to be. So, and I'm, and I'm not sitting here with great confidence saying that I know what speeds are going to be doing and therefore how convexity is going to play out in that market. But I, I do think that there's, uh, I, I still think that they're reasonably priced for relative to say, you know, investment grade corporates for somebody who has the willingness to ride out that volatility. And again, one of our themes for 2024 is, yeah, lower yields, but rocky road. I mean, no, there's no plain vanilla option here. There's no soft landing strawberry. I mean, we're going to be, you know, we're, we're going to be up and down. And that's, so, so I think, I think you know, mortgages give us an opportunity where they're priced today. I, I wouldn't load the boat on them because I don't have a high level of confidence that, that the market is at any moment in time pricing in the right level of prepays in their, in their models. What would you load the boat on other than what we talked about that, you know, five to seven or six year duration treasury strategy? Well, we like investment grade corporates. We're looking at yields in the five to 6% area, investment grade corporates. Now, most of that's triple B, but assuming the economy doesn't fall into recession, we get a huge default cycle Investment grade at those levels look pretty attractive to us. Spreads are low. They haven't really widened very much. But in investment grade, you know, that shouldn't be too big an issue. At the upper end of high yield, if you're willing to take some of the risk there, I certainly would stay away from triple C's. But it looks like in the high yield space, a lot of companies have been able to refi or to continue to push out mature the maturity wall to 2025 or so. So corporates, I think, offer some opportunity both for yield and for capital gains, but again, sort of up in credit quality. And for for high people in high tax brackets, munis, and you can go a little further out in munis. Oh, the other thing about corporate is that the yield curve is positively sloped there. So it's either flat or positively sloped. So right. you get a little bit more yield for going out a little bit in duration. Yeah, municipal bonds, you know, if you're in the, again, I'd have to check again, but, you know, if you're on a high tax bracket, you're looking at tax equivalent yields that are, are north of 5% for somebody in New York City could be even a little bit higher than that. 
So in California, so the really high tax areas, I look at pretty decent yields. And, and usually the buyers in the mini market are individual investors who are looking to lock in income, tax exempt income. And we think that that can make a lot of sense. You can go a little bit further in duration there without giving up too much in yield. Hey everyone, we're about to get back in the action, but before we do, let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at Blockworks. Come March next year in the heart of London, we're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers. I'm talking about the big hitters, fund managers, allocators, payment providers, and the major high-frequency traders. They'll all be converging at Digital Asset Summit London, the mother of all digitally focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty gritty of real world assets. So think stable coins and on-chain treasuries. It's all in the mix. I'm going to be there and so are the forward guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Wang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated Forward Guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG20 to get 20% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode, so gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. Mm, All right, thanks. And then uh, leaving the world of duration and, and going more into the world of credit. So you said you don't like the, the triple C, you know, high yield bonds. What about sort of bank loans, leverage loans, buyout debt, collateralized loan obligations, and then also private credit, which I don't know anything about, but apparently watching TV, it's, it's the hot new thing. So we're not, we're not enthusiastic about any of those. So, <laughs> well, and, and there's a couple of reasons. So leverage loans, bank loans, short, short duration and high yields, very low credit quality. So when you, and also a lot of the attraction there, of course, is the floating rate. So if the Fed is done, you've kind of missed, you, you, that's behind you. You kind of missed the boat if you didn't take advantage of that. So now you have pretty much mostly credit risk. And if we're right that the economy continues to slow down, there's a non-negligible risk of recession, that that's probably, it's probably too late in the cycle to be that low in credit quality. There are liquidity issues there as well. And my concern is that the market really hasn't priced in what it means to some of these companies to roll over their debt at eight, nine, 10%. And the covenant quality has really gone down. As an investor, in the event that you're, um, you know, you end up with some sort of restructuring, you may end up with pick bonds, payment in kind bonds. You may end up with equity. That is probably not why you bought in in that market. Probably you probably bought for the yield, and that's not likely. You're not likely to to, to earn what what you hope for in that market. So we're pretty cautious on the leverage loan side and on the bank loan side. When it comes to private credit, you know, it's very popular, but there are certainly issues that I think you really have to pay attention to. One is the opaqueness of the pricing. So we, we don't, they don't have to mark to market. So you really don't know what the valuation is, unless you can go in and examine it and do the analysis yourself, which most people can't do. 
that every private credit manager that I've ever heard speak talks about how they they've got it all under control and you know <laughs> they're not going to have problems. But you know, in reality, things happen, and not everybody can be you know this the Lake Wobegon story. Everybody's above average in that market. Well, if 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 the if we do hit a bump in the road, so you, you you have companies that need to refinance at higher rates. Some of them are doing, you know, loans against loans right now, financing more financing against financing problems. And what does that what does that mean? A loan against a loan. So you say you have a loan, and it's and you're these companies, and it the rate's gone to ten percent, and you can't pay it. You'll get a lo- another loan to help pay off your loan, borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. And there's a lot of concessions that have to be made there. And that's leverage upon leverage. And these are like supposed to be bridge loans to get you to the other side. But you know, we don't know, is that other side two years away? Is it one year away? Is it five years away? Do you have the stay? Does the company have the staying power to stay in business with this kind of funding at these higher and higher rates? And so I, I just would tread very cautiously in private credit. It's very hard for investors to really know what they're getting and and that is and liquidity can dry up pretty quickly so again we're kind of late in the cycle and so credit quality when borrowing rates are this high is more likely to deteriorate quickly i'm sure it has for a lot of these borrowers and how they get out of it is the big question mark and so because of the opaqueness and the pricing as an investor, you're just putting your money in and saying, okay, I'm, I'm trusting you to take care of this. Is your rate of return going to be what it was the last five years? Maybe, maybe not. And do investors know what they're, they're getting into? In other words, the marginal dollar uh, going into private credit, who is it from? Is it from, you know, institutional allocators at endowment funds? Is it wealth managers? I'm not making a comparison at all to the great financial crisis, but a hallmark of, of there is, you know, exceptionally sophisticated products being being bought by clients who maybe didn't understand what they were getting into. Again, not making a c- comparison, but uh, yeah, do people, you know, understand that it's, it's not the same thing as buying a, a bond ETF, for example? Yeah, I hope so. I, I would think they do. I think you know most usually have to be for individual investors have to be a sort of qualified buyer in a, a wealth area that that qualifies you to buy them. I think in, in most in most cases anyway. Do people ever really know what they're buying in a comp- more complex product? <laughs> Is always the question, right? Does everybody know everything they need to know when buying in? Probably not. I think. Yeah, there are institutional buyers. You know, I think some of the big pension funds are sticking with the strategy and even allocating more as time goes by. Uh, there are certainly, you know, fund managers, et cetera, who are, are looking to boost total return that way. And wealth ma- managers who are looking to satisfy a desire by a lot of clients to have something that will be uncorrelated with other assets. You know, this, the story being, well, 60-40 didn't work for a couple of years, so I need something else, right? But I'm, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fixed income person, so I am by nature somewhat skeptical. And so for me, I don't know who needs this product, but I think that if 
it's something people want to go into, yeah, a lot of education, a lot of disclosure around what what it entails, how it's going to be managed, who's going to be managing it, what the range of outcomes is. Yeah, I, I think that's warranted. Right. And uh, I guess the, the new word people are talking about is is debanking and it's private credit replacing a lot of the lending activity of banks. I suppose one positive to financial stability is there you know, can't really be a bank run on a private credit fund because you know, clients have their, their money tied up. So from a systemic point of view, uh, um, that's good. But uh, yeah, how do you think that, uh, you know, in, in other words, is, is there a hole left by, by banking that private credit needs to fill? Because, you know, I'm speaking as someone who following the lots of activity and the volatility in, in the banking sector, let's say in, you know, uh, the spring and summer of this year. And for a while, money was, was leaving the banking sector extremely quickly, deposit outflows. And so banks are you know, reducing their, their loans and, or, or reducing their loan growth, I should say. And so private credit stepping in to, to fill the void. Do you think that, that that will continue or do you think that that banks rebound will you know, have, a, have a comeback? Private credit will be around filling in gaps. The bank's you know, regulation is stiffer than it used to be. And so, and certainly this episode last spring was a motivation for being more conservative in their lending and pulling back on some of the, the riskier parts of the market that are now being filled by private credit. But I think private credit's around to stay. Does it, does it need to be there? Well, it is there. I, I don't know what it needs to be there, but it is there. And I think there is a push at the SEC and other FINRA, et cetera, to kind of look a little deeper and say, okay, well, what, what does this mean for the overall financial system? Because even though, you, yeah, you get a run on a private credit fund, it shouldn't have a massive effect on the economy. Uh, but is there contagion? Does one thing spread to another? When one fund is running into trouble, does another fund have trouble? Uh, is there enough... Um, cash available to kind of fill this hole up, a hole that might be created, or what are the ripple effects? And I think that that's the question mark around this very strong growth in private credit. What are the ripple effects of a problem that might run through that market? And I, I don't have the answer to that, but I do think that that's probably something we're going to see the regulators look at pretty carefully, saying, you know, do these big fund companies have the, the cash cushion? Do they have the liquidity? We know that you're locked up. And so, you know, their gate, the gates can go up, but we also know that, you know, at times when, when somebody's locked up in one place, they try to get money from another place to fill the gap. And so what are those connections? What is that potential contagion is probably something that the regulators are looking at more closely. Hmm. Uh, very interesting. Re- returning to uh, treasuries and, and bonds. So you laid out a compelling case for, you know, why interest rates, bond yields could continue to decline. Uh, how do you think about positioning? I've seen and, and heard of a few uh, um, sentiment uh, polls, investor surveys showing that bond positioning is actually is actually quite long. In other words, um, clients actually agree with you. However, but that means that there's no one else to to agree with you. You know, you know, in other words, so h- how do you assess the current bond positioning? And do you, do you think the positioning and, and sentiment supports or is a challenge to your, you know, moderately bullish view on rates. So I don't usually take sentiment into account heavily. And the reason is that, again, like a lot of other things, I've tested it over the years and it hasn't worked very well for me. But, and I also, because the bond market is so large and dominated by so many large players that sort of investor sentiment 
is more marginal impact than say it might be in the stock market, I think. But having said that, although I think some positioning has gotten long, I can only judge by what I see among our client base at Schwab. A lot of people have started to move out in duration, but a lot of people are still kind of cautious and waiting in very short-term paper. And because it pays more, right? If you can get 5%-ish in very short-term paper, why go out longer, take the risk, especially after the volatility we've seen over the last year. And uh, so I see a gradual move. So I don't know what sentiment's doing, but what I see is a more gradual approach by a lot of people. I'm not seeing a headlong rush into long duration. I'm seeing more caution. Now, you know, maybe positioning in, in some of the, the ETFs, you know, the leveraged ETFs, et cetera, has, has done. And those are probably people who are, are more trading oriented. But from a long-term sort of investor sentiment, it's been a much more gradual move than, than would be implied by some of the other indicators. Got it. Thank you. So I, I know a lot of the work you, you do is focused on the U.S., but scanning the, the globe in terms of bond yields and interest rates, does anything stand out to you that is, you know, you're all you're, you're, you're bullish on duration you know, everywhere on, on the world? Or is there, you know, a, a difference mainly, you know, the Federal Reserve, what the Federal Reserve do, that's going to have a lot of impact on, on you know, U.S. bond yields and, and global bond yields. But the rest of the world certainly has an impact, too. So I guess, you know, we talk about Europe and Japan and, uh, and European, Europe, European and Japanese investors in U.S. treasuries, sort of what is their appetite? What is their exposure? I, I know for a, a time, you know, Japanese government bond yields yielding zero, U.S. treasury yields yielding up to, up to 5%, that seemed attractive. But actually, you know, for investors who were to hedge their currency risk and hedge their dollar risk, it actually was like a, a negative pickup, maybe to do with the, the, the curve. So, yeah, just what are your, your views on, on non-U.S., Europe, Japan, or anywhere else that you, you think is very interesting? Yeah, I think developed market yields will fall, you know, led by the U.S. And, and well, maybe led by Europe because things are developing much more growth is slowing much more quickly in Europe than I think was anticipated by the European Central Bank and um, Germany kind of testing testing a recession, uh, all of Europe slowing down faster than expected, which really, I, I mean, not too big a shock because a lot of what happened in Europe was the supply side shock that came from the energy. So it wasn't a demand-driven inflation shock. And so now that the supply side is is returning to a more normal setting, demand never really took off that much. So the response of the ECB was probably overdone. And I think they will probably be the first to cut next year. So we do see European yields coming down, but I also think the, the euro will probably come down a little bit with it. Not dramatically, but you have to take that into consideration if you're looking at European bonds. Similar story with Canada, Australia, you know, Canada's got a property market issue that we think will result in the Bank of Canada having to ease rates at some stages of the game sooner and more aggressively, say, than the U.S., because the property sector is more affected by the change in mortgage rates. So we think that's a potential for some return there, but again, it will affect the currency. Japan is kind of a different story because you have you know, the, the Bank of Japan talking about exiting yield curve control and allowing yields to go up. And they did, they have gone up. At the same time, 
you know, the yen has been all over the place, you know, initially stronger than weaker, you know, really moving. And as you said, that hedging is still relatively expensive for foreign investors and for Japanese investors in the U.S. Not as expensive as it was, but it does diminish some of the yield spread. So Japan's a different story. I think that if there's a story in 2024 around international yields, it's going to be around the Japanese bond market and the potential for yields to go up and the yen to recover as well. So that's going to be tricky for a foreign investor in Japan. So as bond yields decline, or if they decline, who do you think the marginal buyer will be? If we have you know, the banks, the insurance companies, central banks, if they you know resume quantitative easing, which I'm not saying that they will, obviously it will be a combination of, of all those parties and more, although maybe not including the central banks. But you know, as you, is there any sort of area where you think there will be a particular pickup pick up in, in a strength of who the who the buyer will be? I tend to think that domestic domestic investors have been under invested in U.S. bonds for a while, and so I think that that probably, if there's a marginal buyer stepping in when yields are attractive, it will be you know domestic retail investors, mutual funds, etc. I think they've been under allocated. Particularly if there is a setback in the stock market. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with the stock market, but I think I think rebalancing may come back into favor after after year a couple of years when oh there's no yield in bonds, everything's in stocks, et cetera. Now there's yield. I think that probably the marginal buyer on upticks in yields will be probably domestic investors, you know, so the retail investors through the mutual funds and ETFs. Mm, got it. And I, uh, you referenced earlier, you are somewhat bullish on the dollar. Is that correct? Or at least against the euro? My view on the dollar was, you know, we were in a 10 or 11 year bull market. I hit the peak, have come down a bit. I think there's a bit of room here for it to come down some more if the Fed leads the cycle on the downside. But I don't think there's much downside in the dollar uh, because there's more downside in in growth outside, particularly in Europe from here. And you know, China's been soft. So I, I think the dollar eh, is probably going to bounce around and consolidate here, but it probably has a bit more upside from where it is now because the market's built in, oh, the Fed's going to be aggressive and lead this rate cycle. And now it's looking like, no, maybe not. Maybe ECB is going to lead the rate cycle. Maybe, you know, we've got more risk of recession outside the U.S. than in. And those capital flows into the U.S. have continued to be very, very strong. So I think that if we continue to grow at a margin, even a small margin to the rest of the world, west of the developed world, that will probably continue to bring those capital flows in. So I don't see a huge downside to the dollar. I see some upside, but it's going to be more moderate this year. It's not going to be a major bull or bear market, in in my view, for the dollar this year. Mm. So you think the ECB could cut before the Fed? That that could be a big deal. I could see the dollar rallying a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's possible. When you start looking at the numbers there, and I think somebody from the ECB was out today saying, well, you know, maybe we... Maybe we've miscalculated that inflation has come down a lot faster than we thought. I think it might have been Isabel Schnabel. So, you it know, was a pretty big sig- clock. So, when you see, you know, like the Waller of Europe. 
Right, exactly. But if that's the case, then, you know, that's an important pivot that could take place. Justifiably, I think Europe is much weaker than the U.S. in terms of economic growth and inflation is probably headed lower there faster than, uh, than had been anticipated by the ECB. Well, we'll leave it there. Kathy Jones, thank you so much for uh, joining us and uh, sharing your, your views, your insights, your time. People can follow you on Twitter at Kathy Jones, where you share a, a lot of very interesting and insightful charts data. Thanks again. And thanks, everyone, for watching. Thank you for having me. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined.